Hello, welcome to the D&D Roundtable, presented by The Tome Show. I'm your host, James Intercasso. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and shop as you normally would. Today, we're talking about the new edition of D&D's Living Rule Set, a live unboxing of the D&D Starter Set, and magic items in organized play. But first, let's meet the panel. With me today at the roundtable are Joe Lestowski. Howdy. Topher Cohen. Hola. And Mike Shea. Hello. All right, guys. And since Mike is new to the roundtable, but certainly not new to anybody who's been listening to the Tome Show, uh, let's go ahead and give the, the people who are listening our credentials. So, Joe, where are you from? What's your background? Right now, it's like an off-white wall um, <laughs> that uh, I uh, I have been uh, playing D&D since 92 or so. Uh, I uh, run the D&D Encounters program for my local gaming store in Western Massachusetts, uh, Modern Myths. Um, when new D&D products start coming out, I will again uh, do uh, post reviews of those online at modern-myths.com. And I also uh, contribute a lot to uh, DungeonsMaster.com, which is a DM site that frequently talks about what happens in encounters, but other DMing stuff as well. Excellent. Topher, how about you? Uh, I live in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I also run an encounters program at Smyrna Titans Gaming Comics, just outside of Atlanta. Uh, I've been DMing for longer than I care to admit. I used to... Um, <laughs> some people may remember I used to write for um, CNN covering tabletop gaming, including D&D. And um, now I just annoy people on Twitter and um, Google+. Plus. <laughs> the best kind of annoying <laughs> mike shea what are your credentials uh, uh i've been playing D since the 80s um i run the website slyflourish.com and i've been running that for i think about five years now uh i wrote uh a couple different D books including sly flourish's dungeon master tips and the lazy dungeon master and i mm. freelance for wizards of the coast uh i did a lair assault uh, called Kill the Wizard, and I did the first published D&D Next uh, adventure available on D&D Classics called uh, Vault of the Dracolich, which is also a game day event. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I love the adventure. Uh, so, today's get-to-know-you question for our panel, which creature from any edition of D&D is the most overlooked? Joe, let's start with you. Uh, well, my first answer was going to be the Invisible Stalker. Mm. Uh, just because you can't see it, so of course you're going to overlook it. Um, huh. But uh, I'm actually going to go with uh, something that caught me totally off guard in early editions of D&D, the Kobold, uh, because I thought, you know, crappy little one-hit die monster, not much of a problem. And then I went into Dragon Mountain, and Kobolds were organized and hiding behind things and killing you left and right, and I gained a great respect for Kobolds in that adventure, mm. and... and uh, have not lost it, although I know I notice a lot of players these days are, are very casual about their killing of kobolds and don't think much of strategy. So I think that needs to be fixed uh, in an adventure sometime soon. Did you did you hear Wolfgang Bauer talking about uh, the first uh, big uh, what, what's it called uh, horde of the is a what's the oh the the adventure? coming dragons. tyranny of dragons did you hear him refer to it as lousy with kobolds <laughs> i think that's, that's awesome. a hell of a review well that's you know awesome. that's their uh so he doesn't underappreciate kobolds <laughs> right 
No, that's his uh, signature monster, right? Cobalt Press. Mm -hmm. Topher, which creature is the most overlooked in any edition of D&D? So I'm going to kind of take Joe's point of view on this and go with the skeleton. I think too many DMs just use the skeleton as, uh, all right, we're going to fight these skeletons before we get to the actual monster or the actual bad guy in the dungeon. And if done right and statted right, the skeleton can be a make or break for a party, whether it's waves of minions or doing some, you know, there's some really well-written in fourth edition skeleton bosses. I just think that it's that underused, underthought of when everybody's thinking, well, I want to really test my player, so I'm going to you know, put a beholder or a couple displacer beasts or why not five really well thought out skeletons? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is true. I've never seen that really. Mike, how about you? What do you think is the most overlooked creature in D&D? Well, I, I looked at it slightly differently. If we kind of consider uh, overlooked to be kind of an equation of value divided by attention, uh, <laughs> I went with the lack of attention side. I, I lowered the mm. Uh, I, I increased the denominator quite a bit with the Balu Catherium. <laughs> this is on page eight of the original monster manual. So it's been around forever. It is a giant prehistoric rhinoceros. <laughs> and I didn't, I had never heard of it until I said, you know, I better do my homework for the show and picked out the original monster manual and hit that one. What in the hell is that? Uh, but I'm going to cheat and have a second one. That's going to be along the lines of what we've talked about so far and go with man. Ooh. Oh, if you look on, uh, I don't know what page is on here, but man is one of the monster men actually is one of the monsters. Of course, <laughs> it's totally sexist in this case. Uh, <laughs> but if you think about villains in a game, I don't know how many times I've just gone with, you know, the, the generic humanoid mm -hmm. and then gave them classes of stuff. And they are always far more interesting than typical monsters that you face. So that will go the other direction and increase the decrease the numerator. <laughs> Until we have man. Yes. Yeah. There is no more, you know, the most dangerous creature on the planet. <laughs> man. Well, maybe you could put him on top of one of those prehistoric rhinoceroses. Yeah, that would be the no, worst. That would be that. <laughs> maybe a few levels of wizard. Yes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That would be terrifying. <laughs> I think I just invented. I think you just invented a new event. <laughs> Okay, guys, let's talk about a Legends and Lore article from the 23rd of June called A Living Rule Set by Mike Merles. And it's an article that talks about how they're going to be revising this edition of D&D that's coming out uh, to update it with surveys and about once a year take the temperature of the players and everything and see how things are going. And if they do identify problem areas, they're going to figure out ways to change them, sometimes with simple updates in an FAQ or, or similar resource. And it sounds like if there's any huge problems, which they're uh, it sounds like they're not anticipating, but they're acknowledging could be a possibility. They're going to uh, find some other way to implement it, but they don't want to rush things and they don't want to make people feel like they have to go out and buy new books every several years. Uh, I think that's a really great philosophy to have behind this design. I'm interested to see how it's going to be implemented. Do you guys think this is an effective strategy? What do you think? Joe, let's start with you. I don't know. I, I think that when an edition gets released, I think there's a lot of edits that you just 
would never think of in in playtesting with smaller groups that suddenly will will pop up. Um, and we saw that with fourth edition, there were errata every single month, and some of them were very significant. Um, I like that they've put a lot of effort into uh, planning the edition beforehand, so maybe they're not anticipating that level of, of revision. But it it feels every year feels like they're they're. I don't want to say crippling themselves, but basically crippling themselves in terms of their ability to keep the keep the game as balanced as it should be. Uh, you know, if if they're saying, "Well, we're only gonna we're only gonna survey people once a year," and and we'll we'll let that be the the deciding factor. Uh, at the same time, though, I, I like that they're not going to try to rush everything because they've got a new edition coming out in three years. Um, they they do say later on in the article, "We see fifth edition as the game we want to stick with for the long haul." And that gives me hope that okay, well, maybe when these changes come, you know, that they're still gonna, it, it's gonna be part of something that they're not just gonna stick a patch on until the next edition comes out. It's gonna be an actual work changing this in a way that will make sense for the game forevermore. Sure, and I think the modules that are gonna be included heavily as a part of this edition also make modifying the game a little easier, perhaps bringing out new modules and that sort of thing instead of entire rules rewrites are going to be effective for them as well. Mike, what are your thoughts on this article and what it means for d d It's It's interesting. Um, I mean, when we, when we look at 4th edition and we look at 5th edition and compare the two, um, they're very, very different games. And I think that... Um, you know, he, he hits on something and he, he almost touches on a sensitivity, I think, for a lot of 4E people, which is the incredible amounts of errata that happened with 4th edition. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, 4th edition had 75 classes, over 3,000 feats, and over 8,000 powers. And that was where a lot of the errata came in, is that it only took a few of those to go unbalanced. And they had to go in and change it. And I'm not, I'm not feeling that same kind of overall you know, direction towards crunchiness with, with fish, fifth edition that we saw with fourth. So that, that could actually help. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, I, you know, there's some interesting bits in here. Like, you know, one of the things he says in here, and I don't know if I'm grabbing onto like two words and turning it into a big deal, but he makes it sound like they're going to be reprinting these books with updated rules over the years. And that's something they never did with fourth edition. Like there was never a new player's handbook or a new monster manual that updated the monster math. And it would have been nice. I mean, one could argue that the Monster Vault was sort of that, but it was really a different book. Yeah. Um, right. So it'll be, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested to see. I also think that there's a very big online component to this one with the, you know, D&D Basic, uh, the D&D Basic release. And my guess is that we're going to see more digital products mm-hmm. um, as well. And those are obviously a lot easier to update and just kind of send a link saying, hey, we updated it. Go download it again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, of course I want them to update it and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that fifth edition is leaning much more towards more abstract fluffiness than the pure kind of tabletop mechanics that 4E had, because those tabletop mechanics are where you have to have lots of mechanical updates regularly. And, and I, I'm hoping we won't see that same level of in, in this. Sure. I agree with all of that too. I think it's, with these digital tools and digital products we're going to see, it might be really easy to start downloading errata and new uh, versions of the books and stuff. You know, drive through RPG makes that really easy. And, you know, Wizards has already done that with some of the 
Dead and Thay kind of stuff. They've re-released things mm-hmm. when their mm-hmm. you know their color grading was wrong and that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hmm. And that's proven to be really helpful. It is a question though of so if that's going to make things easier for people who buy digital properties, will it be harder for people who are buying books at their local friendly game store? And will that be harder on the game right. stores or right. easier? Right. Mentioning uh, what it does to the game stores, though, if they're like you know, if they print the first edition of the book and then they decide to include all this around and print the second edition, what happens to those first editions? And that'll be an interesting sort of mm-hmm. business reality for a lot of gaming stores. If they're like, okay, everybody's going to buy this $50 book. So we'll shell out our money to get, you know, 20 of them in stock. And then if a new edition of that book comes out too soon, then that will sort of screw over gaming stores. So I like that I know earlier I said I didn't like that they were taking their time, but from a from a business standpoint, I think it's better for the gaming stores uh, that a new edition of the book isn't going to come out right away or every time uh, mm-hmm. there's changes. Yeah, yeah, and so. and we're also hanging on, like I said, kind of three words. He says we can update future printings, so <laughs> we can. Yeah, they could do lots of things. They may not, you know. <laughs> right. So that might be, you know, more there's a lot of other people who have more to say than than even Mike Marles on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one of those people is Topher Cohen. So, oh, nice transition. Yeah. What do you have <laughs> to say about this, Topher? Wow. Um, so I think from what I took, my big takeaway from this is it seems like in their perfect world, this is the last uh, version of Dungeons and Dragons base rule set they ever create. And that going forward, it's just either modules or rata. Hence, they're not calling it a number. It's just called D&D. They're giving us lots of clues that in their perfect world, now, will that happen that way or will that ever be that way? Who knows, right? Probably not. But in their perfect world, that when they put this out, that they really want this to be a living rule set that from going forward, there's no, and we're releasing the sixth edition of Dungeons and Dragons coming in 2012 or whenever, right? Um, I think that was my big takeaway of what their hope is. I think the other side of this is that if they're going to do the errata this way, I really want them to give us, like other publishers do, the ability to buy that hard copy, go into my local friendly gaming store, pay my 50 bucks, get my hard copy of the player's handbook or the DMG or the monster manual, and then give me a code or give me some way to also acquire the PDF without me having to pay full price again. I'm willing to pay a couple bucks, but not pay full right. price again. And then if when the errata comes out, really do the bulk of the errata in the PDFs and then kind of make that decision that after this much, this percentage of errata has come out, that triggers a new printing of the hardbound. And then my other question for you guys is how much errata has to happen before it's no longer fifth edition when it's <laughs> 5.1 or 5.2 or 5.1.1.78 or whatever, right? I mean, I mean, are, are we getting into software here? It's <laughs> an interesting question. Well, especially with with the whole module thing, because you know if they if they put, do a lot of errata to the spell points module, that makes using spell points in D anD D very different than they originally said using spell points in D anD D is. But that may have no effect on all of the players that are using Vancey and casting. You know, so if if it's errata to a particular module that a certain population may or may not be using it will change the game for some people, but not for others. And so that's an interesting thing to consider, I think, as they look at this. They, they talk about that a little bit, where, where they say, you know, if, if it, everyone says this class is uh, not very fun and nobody's using that class, then we might want to change it. But if 
they say it's it's got its problems, but people are still using it. Then you know we've got to look at it in this other way. So it looks like they're paying they're going to pay attention to what are the options of the game that are used, in addition to what are the options of the game that might be unbalanced. Right, and let's take it to the next step of people who um, you know for organized play. That are we going to now have to make sure that the people who are rolling up the characters are using the correct you know oh, errated version yes. on top of a errated version? I mean, it was almost if you. I've been doing the play test for next. There was that period of time where I felt like oh, we were getting man. updates every, you know, two or three times a week. Uh huh. And so, you know, when you sat down to play, you had to go, all right, who, who's playing what and what version? <laughs> I, I mean, I don't, I hope it's not that way, but there's that possibility that it be, makes organized play that much more of a nightmare. Sure. But mm. it sounds like their intent is to do this annually, which hopefully wouldn't make, you know, wouldn't have that, playtest update feel of every other week getting new packets and new information and that sort of thing i think it's more like this happens once a year and we compile all the data and then we give you a report you know so hopefully it wouldn't be bam here's a new book three months after the first player's handbook has come out you know i think it's going to be slower than that and it does seem like especially with the release of the core rule books having a few months in between each they are trying very hard to take their time and make things like as perfect as possible which hopefully you know they come out and everything looks good so i'm got my fingers crossed so hold on you brought up a good point there they're talking about once a year so are we talking 18 months from the launch of the player's handbook for us seeing our first errata from them based around the community survey uh, yeah, that's what it Ooh. sounds like to me. I don't know. Do you guys think any differently? I mean, I think you might see parts of it within the year in the digital versions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it yeah. sounds like they're going to try to minimize the reprints if they can. It sounds like they're more going to say, hey, here's a new rules module to replace this rule that a bunch of people didn't like, but some people are still using. You know, I think it'll probably be more along those lines. I can't imagine that it's going to be a new printing of the player's handbook every 18 months that would be crazy well and they could also they, they've also at least in the first year built in a little fail safe where if player's handbook comes out in august and it turns out that this one particular rule is really you know being overused or used the wrong way or, or whatever it is then when the dmg comes out in like november several months later they might have a chance to throw in a little Hey, you know, if you find such and such a rule is being overused, some DMs may choose to do this. And that'll be their way of, of like fixing it without actually having to do an errata or a reprint of the PHB. Uh, Can I, so I have a quick question for folks. So you um you know, for for, for you guys who have played fifth edition with the public playtest rules, have you seen things that looked like the kind of thing that would have or should have been errata had it been fully published? Like specific things? Um, in, in, in different versions of the playtest, certainly. Um, you mean with the current playtest rules? That yeah, are like or? the most recent one, the ones that come with, you know, there's there's stuff that's coming with the D&D Encounters mm -hmm. adventures and things like that, the most recent set. Um, yeah, I have. I've okay, seen yeah, some stuff ahead. around um, some of the uh, rogue powers that seem somewhat broken to me, like, you know, they could use this almost with impunity. I think some of the healing is a little bit wanky and I think it's something they're going to have to fix. I don't know. I, I think, I think that I don't know because, you know, I've you know, play tested and I've seen multiple sets of rules. So 
I'm not quite sure. I think that they've got to be showing us in the public playtest stuff, stuff that's almost probably a generation old. Right. Of right. what they what, what we're going to see in the basic or the box set or the player handbook. Right. I think the key here is we got to remember this, this is that we must all feel really good about what we're going to get in the player handbook and what we're going to get in basic because we're nitpicking their survey style, basically. <laughs> so this is so we, true. So we must feel like, hey, they, they, they kind of got it right this time from what yeah. we can tell. Yeah, that's what I, I couldn't think of anything off the top of my head, Mike, that I would seriously errata so. yeah so it, it's interesting um and talking to some of the designers of Fori, um one of the one of the things that was pretty clear is that they had different groups working on different parts of the game simultaneously that were all released at the same time with hardly any play testing and no public play test mm-hmm. and it would be like the guys working on spells would scale the spell one way and then the person working on monsters would do something completely different. And then they put the two together and it was like, oh, my God, this is way off, you know, or, <laughs> oh, or wow. the, the boundaries. Yeah. So I actually found out specifically about a power in 4E. Um, uh, what was it called? It's a big cleric blast. And it, it went from blast eight to blast. It got errated from a bl- it was a blast eight and uh-huh. basically just wiped out entire rooms full of minions. And it was based on early design documents. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, later on they said, yeah, that's way too powerful. It should be this other way, but it had already been published by that point. Yeah. Right. Turn undead was that way too, because it yeah, kept getting right. bigger and bigger. And then you could just apply ah, it to other yeah. creatures depending was, on what holy symbol you had. Right. Solar so flare I, or something was the, the one I was thinking of. Yeah. So yeah. It yeah. called it solar nerf because it got nerfed. Um, <laughs> but what's, what's interesting about that is if you think about 4e and how mechanic, mechanic heavy it was, and the fact that it had no public play test. And then you look at this one, which is it's most m- many of the mechanics like spells are really still the bulk of the of, of what is going to fill up the player's handbook. Mm-hmm. And the spells are all like essentially the same spells we saw in first and second edition. Yeah. And they're very mechanic light when you read them. So we have a mechanic light system that had a two year play test compared to a mechanic heavy system that had hardly any. Play <laughs> I, th- I think we're going to see a significant difference in the amount of errata that even should be published. Right. Yeah. That's my hope. That's what I'm count that's what I'm hoping on. Exactly. And I hope they don't rush the release of any future products too. You know, I'd much rather have something that's solid, complete, and finished yeah. and I wait a little bit for it than something every month, you know? Yeah. That actually brings me to the live unboxing of the D and D starter set, which is one of the first products that's going to hit the shelves July third, actually, at a lot yeah. of flagship game stores, and it'll hit the shelves on July fifteenth everywhere else. Um, so it's pretty exciting. They did this live unboxing. It had a lot of expected things: one rule book with quick start rules, one adventure a couple of pre-made characters, some dice, and one blank character sheet. And it was great. And they talked a lot about the spirit of the adventure, how you sort of start off on a railroaded path and then enter this open world that it's really intended for people who have never played before. There's a lot of advice on DMing. The backgrounds tie directly into the adventure. So it gives your character something to do immediately, gives them a sort of goal. It sounds pretty interesting and not a lot like something they've done recently. I want to hear from you guys, though. What are the highlights? What did you like? What didn't you like about this live unboxing? And Topher, let's start with you. Uh, I thought it was great. I mean, I think they showed us what we wanted to see. 
Um, I'm a little, <laughs> I find it ironic that they like talking about the dice a whole lot. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think, you know, Mike and Merrill's has done a couple things talking about these dice. I mean, they, they're pretty dice and all that, but, um, <laughs> I, I thought that's what I wanted to see in there. I'm, I think that they, again, need to better reiterate who the box set is for it, you know, cause we're still confusions with people in my gaming group, in my, um, who saw the video and couldn't understand why as a player they would want to buy the box set. Mm. Um, but I think that, I think all in all, it's exactly what I want. Exactly what it is. I'm going to pick mine up on the third and, you know, crack it open. I do wish I have to say this. I've recently bought a couple different starter box sets. You know, I, I thought the Pathfinder one was really well done and both of the fantasy flights for their star Wars game mm-hmm. were both really well done. And the thing I liked the most was the character sheet was more than just a character sheet. It was almost a character portfolio. It made you feel like you really kind of knew this character and it wasn't just some stats on a page. You know, there was a, there was a, you know, a portrait and the background and that kind of stuff. And I was kind of really hoping that they would go that route and give us a little more of a, a character portfolio to, to when they're, if we're talking about new players, kind of show them what can happen with role playing and character creation stuff. It, and that, that's really nitpicky. And I, and I, and I admit <laughs> that's really nitpicky. So that kind of should tell you, I think they did a great job. Yeah, I, I agree. That would be a cool thing to have, but that's probably extra product that they'd have to put in there and drive up the price and et cetera, et cetera. Joe, what do you think? Um, well, I thought it was interesting when they were talking about the character sheet, how they kept describing features that didn't really feel like features. Like, hey, there's a lot of emptiness on this sheet. That'll allow <laughs> you to put whatever you want there. And I was like, that's just not writing that's not a feature that's just empty paper i can get that at home with a you know ream of paper look i've got this big feature um so uh, you know i appreciate that they're trying to okay we've increased the amount of space you've got to write your hit points and things like that um and they talked about how oh well the the modifier is going to be bigger than the ability score but actually not really because you can do it either way you want we haven't told you which way to do it so there it was just sort of like a Here's here's some some ways you could use this character sheet differently, but we're not really going to force that on you. So it was, I, I was a little a little not super excited about their their discussion of the character sheet. Uh, I think uh, what Topher mentioned about having a having a, a story driven part of the character sheet first would be a really bold move if you had no stats on the first page. If you just went story elements on the first page and then you had to go to page two to get the stats, I think that would be a really uh, different. Uh, Experience. I don't. I don't think that D and D will ever go there because stats are such a quote unquote iconic thing. Um, but I, I, uh, I did like some of the other stuff that they talked about. Uh, once we got past all the character sheet stuff, um, there they spent a lot of time talking about the the infinite second wins and how you could or couldn't cheat it. And uh, this is <laughs> later later on in the podcast. And but I thought it was interesting that they had put some thought into that. And they said, okay, we need to have healing available in case there isn't a cleric, and yet it shouldn't be better than cleric healing so after you know first level or so it's going to get less and less effective because it's only this set amount and and so it, it, I, I like that they're putting that level of thought into it that that kind of uh the, those kind of discussions are being had and that made me feel like the product i get is gonna ha- it just you know be not just hey let's throw these these numbers down or let's throw you know that, that they've actually put a lot of consideration into the different types of play and the different ways that players might use this uh this material 
Yeah, I did really enjoy that discussion, and it sort of showed their philosophy of giving the DM a lot of agency and ability to say, okay, this is being abused, this really isn't being done in the spirit that the rule was written. You know, I, I like that whole debate about that. Um, and I did, I think there was a lot to love about this. Uh, I loved the mention of the green dragon being in the adventure. I'm pretty mm. to see how that's going to play out. Uh, Mike, what were your highlights? Uh, I mean, it, it looks like, uh, so probably my biggest highlight is the fact that it's a top, a top or a, a, a front loading heavy cardboard box. Mm. <laughs> um, I know that like they've done starter sets previously that were kind of the cheap, thin, you know, cardstock box. Yeah. And it just doesn't feel anything like the old D and D boxes. So this one is a nice solid box. Um, I too, I, the, probably the number one disappointment I, I had, and I had already heard about it before I saw the video is that their pre-gen characters, not, um, you know, there's no character creation inside the box. And I, but I, I, I like, they had, it seemed like they had a pretty good reason for it. One is you're going to have basic D and D where you can make a character of any level. Uh, and that's available to everybody. Um, and B is that in, you know, the, the pre-gens that they created are very much set around the adventure. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a really strong, that's clearly a strong, um, philosophy for this edition of D and D. And I like that they wired it in. So they, you know, they really wanted it to feel like a board game where you opened it up and you had everything you needed and you could just sit and play. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping and I'm guessing that they did some good blind testing on that with new, new groups. They, they kind of hint at the fact that they had done some of that. Um, because that, you know, really when it comes down to it, there's, as, as far as I can tell, there's only a few on-ramps for RPGs in general. There's a lot of fantastic RPGs out there. But there's not that many that are really going to bring people who have never really played in this hobby in. I'd, I'd say Pathfinder is one. You know, anecdotally, I know people that started with Pathfinder, mm-hmm. and um, but really, I think this is the one that you know is going to have the biggest name. The Star Wars one certainly is another one that could that could bring people in um, just because of the brand name. So it's very important. Um, I don't think it's the kind of thing that uh, experienced players are going to want to buy. Uh, I think they'll be more than happy to just download the basic D and D pack online and then wait for the player's handbook to come out. Um, but I bought, I think I pre-ordered eight copies of it <laughs> and I'm, and I'm still going to go to the FLGS and buy one for myself on the third. And my plan is to hand them out like candy. I'm going to give them to, you know, everybody that I've played with who helped me with the play test. I'm going to give a copy to and say, either keep it or give it to somebody you think might be interested in it. Yeah. And, nice. You know, funny you say that. Cheap. I did the. I, mean, I did the same thing. Yeah, I mean, it's thir- You know, it's thirteen bucks on Amazon, right? And for me, you know, that that's a great way to kind of get somebody inter- You know, potentially interested. I'm going to give one to my niece. My niece started playing D and D with us, and I'm going to give one to her and just say, you know, here, here, either play it with your friends or give it to somebody you think might like it. And wow. when it's that when it's that inexpensive, I mean, when you think about some of the other ones, like the Pathfinder one, I think is pretty expensive. Yeah. Um, and it's got a lot of great stuff in it. It's a fantastic, it's probably the best starter set I've, I've put my hands on so far. I agree a hundred percent. That thing rocks. Yeah. It's, it's crazy good. Um, mm. but it's expensive and, and Pathfinder is still a really tough, <laughs> really <laughs> tough rules heavy game. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think, it, I think, it, I think it looks really good. Yeah. Can I ask you guys a question? Uh, were any of you guys sitting on pins and needles to find out which magic items might be listed in this set? Because it felt like, 
they were being very devious about that. Oh, which one should we reveal? Oh, we don't want to spoil it. Let's talk. <laughs> hey, guess what? The gauntlets of ogre power in there. <laughs> they give you a strength of 19. Like, was there a collective, like, sigh of, ex- I don't know, yeah, excitation little, or something? I thought was it would it, be something that wasn't in all the playtest packets and everything. I thought we'd get something a little different than gauntlets of ogre power. <laughs> Zastam's black robe of the Archmagi. Ooh. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I think it's it's very interesting that you, uh, you know, you guys are, first of all, Topher and Mike, you're doing the Lord's work by giving out <laughs> free copies of the starter set. I think that's awesome. And I want to follow suit and like give out the starter set to everybody I know as well, um, especially because you come across people who say they want to play but it sounds too complicated or they're afraid of the taboo nature of the hobby and they don't want to get into it you know um and i think this is a great way to get somebody started and make them see like oh it's not that scary it's fun and joe i'm actually really glad that you brought up magic items because it sort of brings us to our next topic which is a D&D Adventurers League article that was published on the 18th of June, which was about magic items in the future of organized play in D&D. And it sounds like what their plan is to keep magic items very special, keep them limited, and really powerful magic items, uh, you're going to have to get these certificates for to prove that you had them you can trade the certificates with other players up to three times uh three seems like a weird arbitrary number but maybe one of you has a good reason for why that is that i haven't come up with so i'm definitely open-minded about it and it sounds like you can't sell back magic items all that sort of thing so magic items Super special, super rare. Sounds like there aren't going to be that many handed out during organized play. uh, Sort of to limit the, I guess, cheating. So if you show up with a character, he doesn't have all this, you know, awesome equipment uh, when you go to a con or to encounters or something. But I'm interested to hear what you guys think of this new system. Mike Shea, let's start with you, since, as you mentioned, you wrote an organized play adventure. Uh, I'm interested to hear what you think of this system of magic item rewards. I didn't have to worry about any of that because it was a one shot. And I didn't (laughs) care if they all lived or died at the end. Um, So I don't know, like, you know, my, my experience with organized play is pretty is pretty limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't really have too strong a feeling. I like the idea that magic items are, are not a required element of the math and that you should feel like you're a fully capable character without one. Oh yeah. Um, it'll be interesting to see like if, if they are that rare, are groups of strangers going to be fighting over who gets an item just because, you know, if, if it's a, you know, plus one short sword of whatever, <laughs> you know, three or the five, three of the characters can, use it they're all like uh you know <laughs> so i don't know it'll be interesting yeah i think you will see some of i mean they were happening in fourth edition at organized play you know you would the fights would break out over who got to keep the plus one longsword and stuff mm-hmm. um so topher and i used to play in encounters together and we witnessed many a, a player battle like that yeah i think i think it is good that they're keeping them special you know he talks about keeping the magic in magic item and i do think that that's a good philosophy topher 
How are you feeling about this? What are your thoughts? I think that I think you hit on it. I think that we're going to hopefully have a uh, a unified playing field so that I can take my character or I can have a player bring a character to any organized play, whether I'm running at a convention or running at the store or running at an event. And it's not going to be walking in with every one of its slots filled with a plus something magic item. Uh, I think it also is going to change. I don't think it'll eliminate because I think you can't eliminate. I think it'll change min-maxing because now you're not going to be able to figure – you can't do the whole I rolled up a character. It's fourth level, so I get a level three, a level four, and a level five magic item by default. I think that's going to change how people min-max, and I think, I think it's a good thing. I think it makes them think more about the character and the powers and how they work together and less about gack I got. <laughs> Joe uh- – what are your thoughts? Because I know you feel a little bit differently, like they're maybe being a little too strict here with this certificate program. It's not exactly too strict. It's too much work for the stores that will have to police it, I think. Um, if there's not a lot more work done on the back end in terms of how you know items are attached to DDI numbers or what... Uh, like. If there's no easy way for a store to tell if some guy is cheating when he says that he got this certificate, you know, because fake certificates will pop up or what, like if they're, if they really want to make this uh, like on, on the level of like, you know, the magic tournaments where they've got, you know, people have been through training to adjudicate these rules to make sure that this cheating can't happen. Like if they really want to bring it to that level, I think there's a lot more work on the back end that has to be done so that stores can access and pull up somebody on their on their system and say oh yeah hey look this guy got this you know plus one flaming sword at this thing at this store over in, at this time and and so he does have that he should or he's already traded it twice so if he trades it one more this will be the third uh, and so that's why I feel like throw all this in there is just going to make a lot of work for stores that if a cheater wants to cheat they're still going to find a way around it because there's no way the stores will be able to keep track of all of that. Huh, that's very interesting. And I think that's a good perspective. But maybe these are ways to put things in, in, in place, you know, roadblocks. Obviously, you can oh, certainly try yeah. to game the system if you need to, but um, well, you know, so, this makes it harder. So, Joe, what do you think about them, the adventure log sheet, where, you know, if you look at it, there's a place for your DDI, your, your DCI number, your, mm-hmm. and the adventure of the session, the date, the name and the DCI number, and all that information. In theory, that could be something that the store would require that you get and that you fill out and then you could use that as a fact check, I guess. I think so. I think so. I just I, I worry in the moving store to store. Um, like I think that'll work if you've only got one small insular group of people that never leaves your store. But if you get into the thing where you've got people that are coming from other stores, it sounds like they're trying to implement this so that it will allow you to go any table across the you know, the world or the, the, uh, the panoply of players of D and D through, throughout, uh, the continents and, and still be able to have your magic items proven that you should have these. And then you can go and you know, almost like Pokemon, you can go and trade your magic mm-hmm. item with some, uh, somebody else that you find that has an equal level, uh, magic item that you want. And that sort of, it, it I, I just want to, I want to see more, more support for it. And maybe it's there and it just hasn't been released yet. And I'm just, worrying for nothing but that's that's my only concern is that yes documentation may work in a single store at a, at a single time but then if i go to another store and i'm like oh yeah yeah my other store has that all documented no no i really have this item yeah they've got it at the other store 
like if if it's not if it's not all entered and then accessible by everyone i don't know that uh it'll it'll work as uh as well as as it's intended to does anybody else have anything they want to say before we wrap up uh, just that I'm super excited to get a chance to get this, and I'm really happy that uh, Wizards is releasing it to their uh, gaming stores uh, first. I think that's a great uh, point in favor of local gaming stores, and I think we, you know, the more we can do to support them, uh, the better. Uh, so I'm really happy that uh, I'm going to be able to get my hands on this uh, within a week of the time we're recording this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Really, really jazzed about it. I'm I'm really excited that they they've come out and said that. That you can, you know, here's a way to use the the starter set for organized play to fill the gap between the end of this encounter season, the beginning of the next one, and giving us kind of some, some like quote unquote official guidelines. I think that was kind of rock and roll. All right, guys. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Where can people find you, Topher? Uh, they can find me on the Twitters at um, at Topher ATL. That's T O P H E R ATL, or on Google Plus for uh, using the same thing. Nice. Joe, where can folks find you? Um, as I said earlier, I'm on uh, DungeonsMaster.com. I'm on uh, Modern-Myths.com, which is my local gaming store. Uh, and also at Joe Listowski uh, on the Twitterverse thing there. Nice. And Mike Shea, where can folks find you? SlyFlourish.com and Twitter.com slash SlyFlourish. Nice. And I'll link up all that info in the show notes. Guys, if you have a question or topic you'd like to see us discuss on the roundtable, reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at James Intracasso. That's J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Or you can leave us a comment on the Tome Show's website, thetomeshow.com. And a quick shameless plug for me, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age. It's the 5th edition world I'm building for my players. It's at worldbuilderblog.me. All right. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Topher, Joe, and Mike. Also, many thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Keep on rolling, and keep on listening to the Roundtable.